I can tell you when I work with kids and I share, sometimes I will share an example of my own experiences and I will show a picture of my friend from my Instagram and I will say, here's what happened. I looked at this picture and here's what I thought. And of course, it's all about me, right? And all the ways I'm not measuring up. You can hear a pin drop in the room when I do that. And it's not because anything I'm saying is profound. It's just because you can see all their brains being like, wait, you do that too? I thought that was just me. This year, the CDC's annual Youth Risk Behavior Survey offered a grim outlook for the well-being of young people and emerging research points to social media as a key factor. Over the next few weeks in a special five-part series, we're bringing together experts, advocates, and school leaders to better understand the impact of social media on mental health and discuss how best to support kids and teens. I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. In our last episode, we spoke with researcher Jonathan Haidt about how the advent of smartphones created a social media-dependent generation. Today, in the second episode of this series, I'm joined by Dr. Jill Walsh, professor of sociology at Boston University, whose research is focused on the digital space and its impact on adolescent development. Dr. Walsh is also the founder of Digital Aged, through which she works with parents and counselors to give them the tools to help young people navigate the online world. Thank you, Jill Walsh. Thank you very much for being here with me today to talk about some interesting and maybe scary things. That's right. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here and talk about this with you. I want to just start out by just kind of level setting with what you do now, because you're you're still at Boston University. So you're a researcher, but you also are kind of in the trenches working both with your students and with families and other kids somewhere at the intersection of the digital space and child wellness. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about how you ended up there. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, a very circuitous path. I've always been interested in adolescent development. I would say that's sort of the core focus that I've had throughout. And my interest has always been around social networks and how kids are connecting around networks that can be, in some cases, true buffers to challenges they might face in their mental health and things like that. And then also social networks where it creates huge challenges for them, right? So it can go either way. And I've always been interested in that. And about 15 years ago, I believe it or not, was looking at Facebook and MySpace um, <laughs> in those like quaint old days of social media. Right. Um, and I started right. there, Tumblr too, I shouldn't forget. And that, you know, the quirky, weird, fun spaces where kids were just starting to, and by the way, I should preface this, high school kids, right? So at that point, I was really only talking to ninth through 12th graders, and they were just starting to kind of dip their toe into sort of putting pictures out there, getting feedback, that kind of thing. Fast forward to now where, you know, I'm talking to third and fourth graders about posting videos on TikTok, right? So this has accelerated at a pace that I think it far outpaces our understanding of what's happening. And so I think what's really hard for us as researchers is like, actually trying to say anything definitively, because so much of this actually should be studied longitudinally. And they, we just don't have the data, right? So this is the current era of third graders on TikTok. I need to look at that group, you know, in 10 years to know what the impact of that really is, although I have some hunches, right? And so this is the challenge of the work. But yes, it's just, it's trended younger and it's trended more complex, right? So when kids were just managing Instagram 
And that was, you know, by the way, that felt challenging to me. 15 years ago, I was like, wow, how are you doing this while you're a teenager and dealing with all the insecurities of that? And now they're managing Instagram. They're doing their athletic highlights videos on Twitter and, you know, Be Real and TikTok and Snapchat and group texting and all of this. It's just coming at them so fast. So that's what I've been thinking about. This is kind of the question that as I was reading your research and and preparing for this conversation, the thing that kept circling my brain is that there must be very concrete differences that you see between Gen Xers and millennials who never had, like they were living primarily in like a physical plane. And, you know, and then we have, you know, Gen Zers who really, their, their paradigm has always been both a physical and a digital plane. And I mean, 15 years ago, I was still working in technology. And I remember there being some research that came out that said, you know, a 20 year old at the time really did not distinguish between its friend group in the physical world and its friend group in the digital world. And they might attend a party or a get together online just as easily and as fluidly as they would. And I thought, well, that's fascinating. Isn't that amazing how big our worlds get? But they not only get bigger, they get faster. And now having two children of my own, and you think about child development and brain development, it's like, wow, how fast can everything really be where we can stay caught up with everything? What do you think about that? How do you think about that? I'm so glad you asked me that, Jill, because that has been the topic of this year for me. Actually, I should say the last two years, uh, post sort of coming out of the pandemic and thinking about this tech saturation that I think we all went through, to be fair. But what's interesting is to think about how, for many of us, it didn't come back down, right? So, so many of the aspects of like, we went back into the office or we did that, but so much for, especially for kids, that became the new like normal in terms of their tech use, right? And so I started to think about exactly what you articulated, sort of the what's lost, right? We we know that there's some things that are gained and they're really important to acknowledge, like the connection with friends, the ability to collaborate on homework and all of that kind of stuff that they can do, the creative spaces, the you know social activism that they can engage with via the social media space. I love all of that. And yet the reality is that for so many kids, What I think is the big profound shift I've seen from kids who were, let's say, my college students 15 years ago to the kids now, they have no time for any self-reflection or any time alone with themselves. And, And I think we are undervaluing the impact of that in our 21st century society, but we have known for decades, right? The power of sitting alone with your thoughts, right? Especially as a teenager, when you're trying to figure out who you are or who you might want to be, right? This is the classic work of Eric Erickson from like 1967, Mm. right? Of like the work we have to do is yes, out in the world with same age peers, but also time alone to self-reflect. And one of the things I've been hearing about in profound ways over the last two years is that kids are not that, by the way, that work is hard right? Figuring out like, what do I actually want to do? Who do I want to be? How am I going to handle this friend challenge? Those aren't very comfortable, easy thoughts. And so what kids are doing is they're just constantly distracting with their device. Because it's the complex thoughts are too much. Is that it's just too It's just too heavy, right? And it's so easy to pick up the phone and just distract yourself with a quick video, right? And they all just intend to look for two minutes, right? We we know as parents, it's never two minutes, right? But the idea of like, I just, you know, I'm in the car and instead of, you know, I remember being a kid and sitting in the car while a parent drove and just looking out the window. 
right? And yeah, just, and listening to NPR exactly. or whatever, like, and being two bored. decades old music was on. Yes, exactly. Being <laughs> exactly. really bored. And I think yes. our society really doesn't value boredom. And yet it's actually so critical to teenagers. And so let me just give you one piece of insight that really clicked it for me was I had a focus group of high school kids and we were talking about this issue of just like, do you have downtime to think through things? Do you process things that they're happening? And, you know, they were like, no, I don't. I never do that. And it was emerging in two key ways. One, a lot of them were saying, all day I avoid doing it. And then at night I get into bed and my brain feels like it's on a hamster wheel. Like every thought, everything Uh. I didn't think about all day is firing at them, right? Because they're finally alone. The other thing that really hit me was how many of them talked about literally bringing a device into the shower, like not into the shower, but into the bathroom with them while they took a shower to play a show not to watch it, but to be distracted by the voices, right? The the idea of taking a shower and being alone with your thoughts for, I don't know, five or seven minutes actually felt stressful to them that they would rather put on a Netflix show they've already seen and just be distracted by the voices. So like Calgon take me away is no longer exactly, exactly. And so I think that that can't be good. Can you talk about how, like, what is, how does that affect our, our brains? So this is what I've been thinking about this year, right, is the impact of this avoidance. So the immediate impact to me is the lack of sleep, right, that the kids are saying they're up late, they're later than they intended, all the things they didn't think about, their stress levels are really high at bedtime when we should be winding down, right? So that's the immediate thing. The long-term thing, again, back to what I said at the beginning, like we kind of need 10 years of data to prove this, but my hunch is that if what we know about adolescent development is true, which is time for self-reflection is critical, I very much worry about their overall psychosocial well-being, right? Of thinking about like themselves as humans in the world and how they want to be. The questions that, you know, they'll say to me, oh yeah, like, do I really like my friend group? Or, you know, do I want to play this sport I've played since kindergarten? I don't actually know if I like it anymore. They're just not having those thoughts. And so what I worry about is twofold. One is what happens when we delay this process? This is the generation where we're going to find out the answer to that. But secondly, I also think about what it means for in the moment living, right? When you're sitting with that question of, I don't actually like playing soccer, but I've been playing it since kindergarten, and you just never deal with that. Right, that has an impact on your actual adolescent experiences, not not to mention the trajectory. So I, I think it's really profound. And yet I think we're in a society that like we just don't value boredom. We don't value sitting around staring out the window. Like that that stresses people out. And so I think it's really interesting, but but we're really missing that. And that's a profound shift I can see in the last 10 years that's really tangible. Do you think that it is also happening to adults though? Because as you're talking, I think about how many people tell me that they get up at like they're awake at two in the morning and that then they pick up Instagram or something and then they are flipping through videos and then it's two hours later and maybe they go back to sleep. And I wonder that must make it complicated as if you're if one of those people is a caregiver, then they're not fully functional either like pretty much everything I say about teenagers applies to adults, right? <laughs> I think in this, yeah. in this, like, so, you know, half the time when I'm giving a talk, I'm like, and also you, right? Um, and, and me you, too, right. and me too, right? By the way, 
And so I think it has a couple of really important impacts. Like one, the one you articulated, which is the then the caregiver is less well resourced, right? The caregiver hasn't slept. The caregiver might then be, you know, caught up in something that they saw that was stressful or challenging or whatever it is, right? And then their, you know, cortisol levels are higher. So all of that can impact them. And then I also think it's really challenging because we're not modeling it for kids, right? They're not seeing us engage in healthy tech behaviors where we're taking breaks, where we're sitting and being alone with our thoughts. And I, I think like, you know, one of the things I've been trying to do with my kids, and, and by the way, I do this too. Like I, my inclination would be, oh, I'm going to walk the dog. I'll put in a podcast, right? I, I constantly yeah. I have the voices coming at me as well. So I understand what they're doing. Um, but I've been trying to model and talk to my kids about, you know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to walk. Like, so every day I walk from my office at BU to my classroom where I teach I don't listen to anything. I keep my phone in my bag and I just look up, right? Shockingly, right? I actually look at the road it's, before it's I cross. It's weird to do that though, isn't yes. it? Like it has become it's odd. It's super strange. It's very strange. And especially if you make eye contact with somebody, right? It's like, it feels so <laughs> yes. wildly inappropriate. Yes. Um, but I, yeah. <laughs> I think we have to kind of like normalize that again for our kids yeah. because they are paying attention to what we do probably more than we are whatever we say. It, it has a long tail, right? The impact of both of us. The, the piece that I think is unique to adolescents versus adults is just because they're in that really precarious period in their life where they are actually trying to come to some sense of who they are. And I think for most adults, we got through enough of our adolescence at least without these constant distractions that I don't think it's perfect. I think adults could do more of this as well, but I, I don't worry quite as much about the long-term impacts. I worry more about the immediate impacts for adults. Like we're a little more edgy. We're a little less well-resourced, you know, that kind of stuff. Tell me how you think about and what you know about how this is all impacting adolescent brains. And it sounds like children's brains if third graders are now using social media. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's a couple of things, right? A component of this that I do see an addictive quality to, and I think Anna Lemke's work really highlights this beautifully, is our addiction to dopamine. And I do think one of the things I'm quite compelled by, while I wouldn't necessarily say a kid is so addicted to video games, right? I do see a lot of us moving in the direction of being addicted to dopamine hits all the time. So Lemke's book, Dopamine Nation, I think does a great job of highlighting that. And I'm very compelled by that. So I do think we're seeing an addiction around that, which believe it or not, directly links to our addiction with multitasking. Because when I'm constantly toggling between my Google Doc and my Instagram and my Spotify playlist, I'm actually getting a little bit of a dopamine hit every time, right? Oh, and so it's creating this weird, right? Yeah. So every time I'm like, oh, I have to write this thing and it feels really hard. Let me look at Instagram. I'm actually giving myself a little dopamine hit. We're literally being trained, right, to do this by the algorithms and by all, all of that. That I do think that is a compelling component of addiction that will be borne out more fully in the next couple of years. So that I think is absolutely the case. I want to talk about families deeply and 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 how we are more how we can be more supportive of ourselves and our our kids. Um, but I'm also wondering one of the things I wrote down as you're talking is I know that I have seen my kids in the you know they're now in 10th and 12th grade. I've watched them often during a week waiting for an assignment to be posted and it's eight o'clock at night. And so is there something that, you know, educators should be thinking about in terms of the way that they use digital to work with their students that might help 
kids be in bed and just <laughs> and, and settle down and you know in a space that that is is healthy for them by you know ten o'clock, eleven o'clock, whatever. The, I don't know. I'm just naming a time, but it just seems like they're up all night. Yeah, ten o'clock would be amazing. Yeah. yeah. Let, well, let me <laughs> let me tackle the the family one first, and then I'll tackle the okay. educator because I think they're both really okay. important questions, and I'm glad you asked them. I think in terms of families, one of the things I think kids don't have. Partly this is how they're wired at this age range, right? But there's always this feeling that I'm the only one, right? That's so typical of adolescence. I'm the only one that feels this way. I'm the only one who got left out, right? That is so normative, right? And yet what happens is just seeing post after post after post where you have way too much information, to be honest, about everyone than you should have. It's hard to feel like, oh, this is happening to everyone. Of course, everyone is seeing this. And they, but you don't feel that in the moment. You feel very much like, great, I'm the only one that isn't happy about their college choice, or I'm the only one that doesn't have this thing going on, or whatever it is, right? And so I think one of the things we have to talk to them about is, first of all, normalizing a lot of these experiences. Like social comparison is always hard right? It is always hard to compare yourself to others. By the way, we never compare ourselves as humans. We're not wired this way. We never compare ourselves and and have the memory of like, oh, wow, I'm better than 45 people that I looked at on TikTok, right? We don't capture that. (laughs) What we capture is the one person who has the thing, who looks the way, whatever it is that we're comparing. That's what we focus on, right? And that's how we're wired. And that's true if you're 14 or you're 45, right? We are wired that way. And we have to talk to them about normalizing these feelings. We have to talk about normalizing feeling overwhelmed in friendships, like just these basic things that we sort of like forget because we kind of all got through it. And we sort of don't have this understanding of, oh, it's the same, but super amplified. I love that you use that word of the amplification of this, because that's exactly what it is. So it's social comparisons on steroids, right? And so they need all of our support in understanding that it's not just you who is experiencing social comparisons, we're all doing it. I can tell you when I work with kids and I share, sometimes I will share an example of my own experiences and I will show a picture of my friend from my Instagram and I will say, here's what happened. I looked at this picture and here's what I thought. And of course, it's all about me, right? And all the ways I'm not measuring up. You can hear a pin drop in the room when I do that. And it's not because anything I'm saying is profound. It's just because you can see all their brains being like, wait, you do that too? I thought that was just me. Right, because nobody wants to go into school on Monday and be like, oh my gosh, I was comparing myself all weekend to every, you know what I mean? Like, we just don't talk that way. We, ke- we keep this part of our lives very private. And so we need to bust that open and talk to kids about it. We also need to help them at home take the breaks. They will not, regardless of what age they are, I mean, every so often I'll talk to like a unicorn kid that can handle this on their own, but 99.9% of kids cannot manage this alone. And what we know, and I I totally agree with John Hyde's assessment on this, which is like, it's almost morally reprehensible on our part to let them have consistent access to this. And I agree, like, we need to step in and, and be the bad person or be the person who says like, actually, 45 minutes down the rabbit hole on TikTok feeling bad about yourself is not helping. We're stopping this now. And they can't manage that alone. And actually, although they are not happy in the moment, right? I'm a parent too. I'm on the receiving end when I take that away of all the charming comments that they have (laughs) for me. But I do know from talking to kids one-on-one that they're like, oh, thank God, right? Like I needed to get out of that and I couldn't take myself out of it. And I needed somebody to do it for me. And so I do think we have to be 
more engaged with that part of the process and just knowing truly the answer of when they're ready for a phone is age 25, right? That is when their brains are fully developed and actually at a place where they could start to manage it. Now, to your earlier point, there's many adults who still can't manage it, right? So, that, so I don't think that's like the magic <laughs> right. number, but I do think that, but I share that not to be snarky, but to, to just indicate that basically all the kids living in our homes, they need help. They're not developmentally capable of managing this on their own and they need a lot of restrictions. So whether it's like phones do not go in the room at night, they just don't, right? Putting in some parameters to help them get the breaks so that they can disengage. It helps with that self-reflection work that I was talking about, but also all of this other stuff, the constantly being on, the social comparisons, the feeling judged all the time. The less they're in the space, the less they actually feel it. And so it doesn't solve the problem of social comparisons, but we do know that being on TikTok for 20 minutes, we engage in far less of that behavior than when we're on it for an hour and 20 minutes. Right. And so that substantively has to be good. So so I think we need to get back to a just normalizing all these hard things. Right. And just I always use Lisa Demore's line of like, oh, man, that stinks. right? <laughs> and just talking over and over again about like, yeah, this is really hard. It's really, really hard. It's hard to be left out. It's hard to engage in comparison. It's hard to be in a conflict with friends. These things are hard and we just have to talk about them. And then we have to help them take the breaks. We actually do have to play a significant role at home in setting up rules, whether they are 10. And of course, it's easier when they're 10 to start. But also if they're 17 or 18 and they're heading out to college and you want to say, hey, we need to get some good practices in place so that when you're managing this alone, you've got some ideas about how to do it. Everybody needs the rules and also the adults, right? So like we need to practice what we preach. I put my phone down. I don't bring my phone to my room at night to charge. I charge it in the kitchen because I want my kid to do that too, right? So in the, you know, modeling that I think would be critical. To the question around educators, oh, I have so many thoughts. Um, yes, I think we have, <laughs> I think we jumped, and I and I say this as an educator who uses technology in my classes. I have a website where I keep the course readings and you know all this stuff. So I'm perpetuating the problem as much as I am talking about it. But I think um, <laughs> I think the reality is we moved way too far, way too quickly on educational technology than we should have. And so schools got into this practice of, you know, all the assignments will be posted, all the readings will be posted, all the, you know, every assignment is connected to some sort of tech aspect. And what we're understanding more and more now is that actually tech can be phenomenal when it's used in the right ways at the right time. Otherwise, it's actually, you know, at best, it's just sort of like, another thing we have to do. And at worst, it actually creates significant challenges around comprehension, memory, ability to collaborate, to think deeply and engage in, in really refined listening. And I, and, I, and I talk to a lot of teachers who are there who are like, I am starting to see that these assignments I had or these weekly, like do this thing online isn't serving my students anymore. And I think they're feeling a lot of pressure but like, I'm, but I'm supposed to post or I'm supposed to do, you know, like feeling like this need to keep up with the tech component. And I think we really need a reset as a whole system, right? Of both schools saying, look, we're only going to use tech when it actually really aids the lesson or when it really enhances this. 
and we're not going to, we're going to pull back in these other places. And that might mean, you know, half the day the kid isn't on a device. I think one of the challenges that so many schools got themselves into is this like every kid needs a device in fifth grade or, you know, a lot of schools have moved to this model. And then I think they feel like, well, gee, we asked the family to buy this thing. So now we better use it so they get their money's worth, right? And so it's created this sort of uh, self-fulfilling prophecy where we're overusing it. I'll tell you some critical things that I think educators could be thinking about. One is the thing around discussion. So we know that kids sitting in a classroom looking at their laptop, I mean, best case scenario, they're looking at something connected to the class, but let's be honest, right? A lot of times they're not. It is significantly hindering discussions, in classrooms, right? Kids are not engaging in deep listening with their peers. They're not, you know, sort of formulating an idea, but waiting and thinking it through. It's just kind of like, I'm distracted by my YouTube video. Oh, wait, I got to participate. Here I go. And so I think if you spend time across the country, educators will tell you, especially middle school and up, that the quality of classroom discussion is, is declined. So one of the things that I've been doing in my class and encouraging educators I speak with is to say, okay, when we're going to have a class discussion, it screens down. Right. I, I'll take the notes as the T. I'll sit at the front. I'm the professor. I, you, my notes will be pretty good, I promise. But you're going to take, you're going to put your screens down and you're going to talk. Right. And helping them understand that it has a deep impact for reading comprehension. We don't comprehend things we read on the screen as well as we do when they're in hard copy in front of us. Um, that's really challenging. I, I understand the desire to do this, but, but we got to think about like there's critical texts that kids need to get and they need to see it in print. Our brains can't keep up. And then the third thing is what you articulated, the like uh, sort of like what I would consider classroom management tools, right? It's sort of whether it's the posting assignments on, you know, uh, Canvas or whatever it is, what, you know, one of those kind of sites to offering grading, you know, in real time where everybody can see the grades. It, it's created a, a bit of a monster, right? So on the educator's end, it's the feeling of why can't they write it down? I said it in class. Why did they wait until I post it? The kid, of course, is like, but you said you were going to post it. So I didn't really listen when you said it, <laughs> right? And that creates a problem because I don't, I don't like that dynamic. I think it also, to your point, it, it makes kids then have to do the work whenever it works for the educator to post it. Right. So I understand that some educators might have family commitments that they can't post things until eight or nine o'clock. And yet I can also understand that that might be the absolute worst time for a student to start engaging with a physics assignment or whatever it is. Right. And so I think that component of it, we have to rethink. So one of the things that I've done is I give the syllabus up front. Right. I know, I, you know, in my classes, I say this is the syllabus. These are the readings. There might be a change. Right. There might be three snow days and we have to adjust things. But if things go according to plan, this is it, right? I've started to see some teachers doing, here's the two-week outlook, right? So kids have a little bit more time to plan and have agency over when they engage in their assignments. I like that. Then to the question of like the consistent access to the grades, I actually worry about this both at the kid level and at the parent level. Kids who are attuned to their GPA changing by like, you know, two-tenths of a point, right, as a quiz curate gets posted and they see the GPA changing. It's almost a little bit too much information for kids who are getting really bogged down in the weeds of like, they can't keep the perspective of actually the paper that I worked really hard on that I know is going to go well, isn't going to be the same as the, you know, quiz that I got a eight out of 10 on, right? You right. know, they're, they're sort of right. losing perspective. And then I know from a, the parent perspective, it's a lot of information about our kids. And while as a parent, I love the idea of knowing more about my kids, that can also be a dangerous place where parents are, 
you know, parents often know of the grade sometimes in advance of the kid getting it back in class because it's been posted online, right? And so I've talked to a lot of kids who are saying, oh, I got a text message from a parent saying, oh, wow, that chem quiz didn't go well. And they're like, what are you talking about? I haven't even gotten it back yet. So, so that sort of it can lead to a hyper monitoring coming from the best of places. But, you know, that can also be a slippery slope. Yeah. This is, I mean, we need a rule book, don't you think? Or some sort of like we, we were barely okay at persisting in the physical world. And, <laughs> you know, we kind of got sideswiped by this digital thing. And it's very fascinating and it's very exciting. And it's a lot of fun. Like you're saying, this dopamine hit. Uh, perpetually is, you know, a wonderful thing, except for that it's not. And so from where you sit, do you see conversations happening amongst educators or parents where, you know, I wonder about the next generation. I think about, you know, parents, I guess, of like pre-third graders. I, I, I didn't know to go that early until this conversation, but, you know, kids who are four and five and six, how do we help them think about this and prepare for this as like a real thing. Like this is as big a deal as talking to your kids and learning how to talk to your kids proficiently about, you know, sex and drugs and relationships and, you know, all of those other, you know, things that we just naturally try to do, you know, as well as we can at. We don't, we weren't really primed to have conversations with our children about the digital space, nor with one another. You know, and so I think we're all trying to like, it's still maybe, I don't know, it's like the Wild West or something. We're all still trying to mine it and figure it out. But it does feel like, are there any, are there any things happening to, you know, kind of bring people together and, and thoughtfully think about, okay, what is, what do we really want this platform to be for ourselves and for our kids and for our education system? Yeah. And I, I really love the way you frame that because it, it almost is, it's the trickiest thing for educators and parents because we are in a position of knowing less than our kids about this, right? And that is so out of the norm for us, right? Where normally we have all the answers, right? And we're like, you know, as in a teacher, it's like, I know my, you know, history curriculum or I know my whatever. Like, I've got all the answers to that. And now suddenly we're talking about so-and-so posting something on Snapchat. And it's like, wait, I don't know the answers. That can feel really uncomfortable for adults because we don't know. This. And, and so I think there's a tendency to not wade in from teachers and from parents around this topic because it's sort of like, I don't get it. I have to do all this research. Or we dive in only when it's like, you know, the headline of the New York Times or People magazine and it's something huge. And then we're like, let me tell you 50 things that I want you to avoid doing, you know, and it comes out very much like that. So I think we have to, to the first point, I just want to say quickly because I should have said it earlier. In addition to normalizing these sort of like hard things that happen in adolescence, we need to remember ourselves that most of what they're dealing with is amplified versions of what we dealt with. And so while I don't know what it feels like to look at a Snapchat map and see that I got left out because everyone's icon is hanging out, I do know what it feels like to get left out. And so I can talk to my kid about that. And sometimes we lose sight of that. We do actually have information that's helpful to them. And by the way, that's what they want to talk about. They don't want to talk about Snapchat maps. They want to talk about being left out. So I do think we have an opportunity there. To your question about like, wh what can we do and do I see people doing it? Yes. So the first thing that excites me so much is that I see kids changing. I used to spend, you know, pre-pandemic and even early in the pandemic, I used to spend half of a focus group, just convincing kids that I don't hate everything they're doing. 
right? And I'd be like, tell me all the things you love. Tell me that, you know, and it was not because I needed those answers. It was just because I needed them to know I didn't hate everything. Now it's fascinating. If I start with that, they're like, yeah, okay, I connect with my friends. But honestly, it is so overwhelming. Like they jump right to the things that are hard in a way that wasn't accessible to kids three or four years ago. So I'm very excited about students understanding. They get the algorithms. They're like, what they're doing to me, I'm not okay with that, right? They're much more attuned. I think because of that heightened experience in the pandemic where they got that oversaturation and they were like, this is not satisfying. Like, actually, I am not filling my friend bucket by doing this, right? And so they started to be more critical consumers. So that is one thing working in our advantage. They're primed and ready. They want to know. Kids everywhere I go are like, can you explain what the algorithms are doing to me, how they're using human psychology, right? They want that info instead of before it was like, I don't want to hear you. This is perfect and I love it, right? I used to get a lot of that. So that feels different. That's then translating down at the educator level. And I'm hearing from a lot of teachers who are really starting to do, and, and what I'm loving is working with schools to do that more integrative approach that you were sort of uh, articulating of. It's not just, you know, the digital literacy curriculum that they trot out, you know, in sixth grade, and then you get a different version of it in seventh grade, but it's like a week, you know, now what schools are thinking about it. And what I love working with schools on is like a much more holistic approach. So for example, if we're talking to students about leadership, how is how is a conversation about digital leadership embedded in that conversation, right? It's not two separate things. When we're talking about social conflict and friend management, we're talking about it face-to-face -face and we're talking about it in the digital space. That is just a part and parcel of all the conversations. It feels natural. It's what kids are experiencing. And it's not presenting this to them as like, and now we just learn about your digital footprint. Like I, I love that that is moving more in that direction of that holistic curriculum. So that is something I'm seeing and loving. And then at the parent level, what's been really interesting as a transition is I used to get so many questions about, you know, can you come in and tell parents like what rules they need to set? You know, it was very like what platforms to avoid, what rules to set. It was very sort of this very concrete thinking of like, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Now, most of the questions I get, and by the way, this is even true of elementary schools, they will say, you know, maybe do a little of that, but then they'll say, can you talk about the mental health component? Our parents are craving information about this. They want to know what the impacts are. And I think that feels really different. So I actually think, although the data is scary in some ways, and it, it might even feel scarier, I actually feel like people are more armed with the information at the critical junctures where they can actually have impacts on kids and really thinking about this more holistically of like, what do I want to do no matter my kid's age to help their experiences, knowing that the answer isn't, oh, we'll just put them in a bubble and they'll never experience social media, right? All these same challenges can be on group text as well, by the way, <laughs> you know, so it's not just sort of avoiding one thing, but those are some of the things that I'm really excited about right now. That is exciting to me as well, that adults are, you know, leaning into, I mean, I guess it's hard to avoid, right, This the, the rise in mental illness among adolescents has been so high that I'm, I'm not surprised that people are curious about it and its correlation to use of technology and use of social media. From a child perspective, though, what do you run into? Because I, if I think about, as you're talking, I'm thinking about this generation is faced with adults that didn't know very much. You know, we got hit by a pandemic or we really didn't know. And it was so obvious that we didn't know. And then we all got mad about not knowing. <laughs> yes. 
and right <laughs> yeah, and, and there's this <laughs> and there's this rise in mental illness and again we don't really know and they're pleading with us you know some of them are so sick and their and their friends are sick and they're trying to care for their friends and you know and they're really hoping adults will have answers and and adults are kind of like what the hell is happening you know it's so scary and and so it's got to be difficult to be a kid right now, right? Adults, I always thought until I became one, I always thought adults had all the answers. And then I realized that really didn't. But, you know, it was a good fake out for a while. So so tell me what, how are they, what are they expressing? Yeah, I, I they are really frustrated with us. They are. I mean, I think they're frustrated with us about a variety of things, but they're kind of like, okay, so do something. Like make these companies change what they're doing. Right. Or or figure out a way where we don't this isn't the only way for us to socialize. You know, a lot of kids are saying even like, I want to be together in person and I want to do these things like they they see it and they can't they need help getting there. I think one of the things we also, in addition to all the other things we don't have answers to, one of the other challenges kids are experiencing is all the kids in middle school or high school right now went through a really pivotal point in their development during the pandemic. And that means that most kids, including 12th graders, are about two years behind in their social and emotional development than they should be. Because again, so much of that work has to happen with same age peers and they weren't having access to that. So when I'm talking to 10th graders who are like, yeah, we want to hang out, but then, and we sort of make a plan, but then on Friday, like it just sort of falls apart and we don't know why. <laughs> right. And, and, I, and, you know, teachers are like, are you kidding me with this? And I'm like, right, but they're eighth graders. And we have to think about them. So actually what we think a 10th grader should be able to do, we've got to actually remember we're really dealing with the social emotional development of an eighth grader and by, and a ninth graders and a seventh grade. Right. So this is really good. Shouldn't that be headline news, yes. by the way? Yes. Like that, that should be headline news because I, you know, you don't, as an, as a parent, you're sort of thinking you're supposed to be leaning out in 10th grade, but I, I've noticed this with my, my 10th grader is like, you really need to lean in in order to connect the dots. And it's really hard. Yeah. And so this is what's tricky because we are getting these messages, which I agree with. Like, I don't want to be a helicopter parent. I don't want to be whatever, you know, snowplow or whatever version we're in. I don't want to do that. And yet I see kids who are really lacking a skill set. And then they're in a really tricky position because then they're like, okay, no, literally no one is helping me here. And they're actually making me feel a little bit of shame because I can't make this hangout happen or I can't. But I can't tell you, Jill, how many parents one-on-one will pull me aside after and say to me, oh my God, thank you for saying that because I thought my kid had no friends. Like I was, I was a phone call away from calling the school because my kid is at home every weekend, my kid, but they seem okay. They, they talk about people, but I have no idea what's going on. Right. And it's, it's so much of this. So, so they need a lot of support from us on that end. And, and we're, we're dropping the ball on that significantly. So, and, and by the way, I think a lot of schools are too, like schools are missing the fact that like 10th graders need you know, a pizza night at go to like the, the Friday night game, you know, as a, as a grade, which feels super lame to most people who teach 10th graders, except again, they're eighth graders and they need that, right. like, just come here. Everybody's going to be here and then we'll go socialize, which is much more typical of a middle school thing. So we need to do more around that. And I think they recognize that the translation, what's happening on their end that really worries me and why we have to step up is two things. Uh, there's many, but the two things that I hear on a weekly basis, one is the number of kids and you alluded to it, but it's really critical to say in detail is the kids serving as counselors for their friends. And this is happening literally from fourth grade all the way through. 
kids don't have access to the resources. They don't feel like they can talk to a family member about this. And so they're sharing in text message or in whatever, you know, however they're connecting with each other, really detailed information about what they're going through. And then a kid trying to be a really good friend says, oh my gosh, how can I be helpful? I'm talking to kids on a weekly basis who will say to me, oh, I have to have my phone with me. I have to answer every call because I'm their person. And it's a 13 year old. And I'm like, oh, you can't, you can't be their person, right? That's not safe for either of you. So that is happening as kids are trying to prop each other up. They're making like wellness calls to each other. I mean, literally this is happening in a profound way. And the adults are missing this completely. The adults, I think, are ignoring it. If I were to chime in, I I think the adults, I, I think, you know, we lived by a different set of rules, you know, we Gen Xers and, and millennials, and we're not leaning in to this. And it's it's a really big problem. It's a really big problem in schools. And it's a really big problem just socially amongst all of all of our kids and their peers. And I don't know if it's too much work or we don't know what to do. I don't know if you have a point of view on that. Yeah, I, I think we don't know what to do. I think the it goes it goes both ways because also kids don't know what to do, by the way. So this is the topic where when I raise this with a group, I have to leave, I have to cut the thing like 10 minutes early because there's going to be a line of kids who want to talk to me about their specific example that they're dealing with, whether it's a romantic partnership or a friendship where it's really rooted in, I'm literally offering mental health counseling for a friend, which by the way, they're not qualified for. They're worried because they're like, oh, if I tell an adult, and this is their language, it's going to start a big thing. And then my friend is going to know I'm the one that told, and that's going to impact our friendship, right? So that feels like a a significant burden that they see it as a zero sum game. And where we're dropping the ball is we haven't, we actually don't know the answer, to be honest. Like we're so terrified about mental health that we talk about it in the incredible extremes. And then we don't talk about at all with kids, just like mental wellness. And like, what's the line between being a supportive friend and being a counselor? And how do you know when that line is crossed? We talk about the extremes, right? And we're good at that. And we give the lecture on that. And and I appreciate that. and, And kids are grateful for that. But they're like, I actually don't know the difference between being a counselor and a supportive friend. And what's really interesting, Jill, is when I tell adults that, whether it's educators or parents, they go, yeah, actually. And can you tell me what the difference is? Like, we don't know either. Right. And so I think a lot of these are topics where we're like, wait, I don't, how would I explain that? That feels really hard. I'm just going to hope my kid isn't dealing with that. So it makes me wonder though, if you were to kind of blue sky, a school, like starting today, you know, a, I don't know, fifth grade through, through 12th grade or something like that. It, it feels like, and we haven't talked about chat GPT yet or how, your point of view on AI, but it, it feels like the future is very different in terms of the skill sets that we humans are going to need in order to survive and thrive. And that some of the stuff that school used to be about will be irrelevant. And some of the stuff like, how do you manage yourself in a dual paradigm? And how do you take care of people? And how do we contextually, like, think about the humanness that needs, you know, this wellness support, our brains and our bodies? Like, it just feels like there's a place for that in schools and in and in community gatherings that we, and, and maybe we just don't know how to do it. Or we're like, oh, we can't, like, that doesn't feel like school and therefore we shouldn't go there. But it, I mean... I feel like we should be getting ready for the future and not leave it. You know, I think we're going to leave a whole generation of kids behind. 
And that's what we're doing. And that's why I say, I think they're so angry at us because they're like, hello, you're over here harping about this thing and you're missing all the things we're dealing with. Yeah. A thousand percent. I agree with you. I think, you know, in addition to the skill sets you just mentioned, but it, you know, this one would link up with chat GPT. And also the other point I was going to make about, you know, mental health information that they're getting on, you know, social media is, you know, how do you critically consume information you get in the digital space. Like kids, kids get a lot of understanding about like be critical readers, you know, engage. But how do I actually know when I'm looking at a TikTok that the person who's listed as my therapist is actually a therapist, right? How do we, we need to be talking to kids about that because that impacts everything, right? How do I know if I can trust the chat GPT essay? If algorithms are really like opinions embedded in code, which is my favorite quote (laughs) from Wired Magazine on that, you know, we need to teach that to kids and they should know that in fifth grade so that they aren't like, oh, well, chat GPT said this is the answer. So that must be right. You know, they, they need to understand those skills. And I think we're, we're doing a real disservice as we, try to catch up, but we're sort of, we aren't sort of willing to, it doesn't seem like we're willing to really break the whole system apart and start over. And I think that is what kids need. And whether that's through a wellness curriculum, whether it's an integrated academic and wellness curriculum, like that's what, you know, my dream is that someone asked me to start a school. And that would be what I would be focused on is like, yes, we need the academics. Don't get me wrong. But I think these other things are hard for people to measure And it's really hard for adults to know if we've done them well, whatever the heck that means. And so I think as a result, we shy away from it because, you know, that discussion I was alluding to of like friends as counselors, adults struggle with that. Adults don't know. How would I know if I did that well, if it's only going to happen on a text message with a bunch of kids at night, right? Versus I gave a chem test and I know X number of my students passed the test, right? And those feel so much more accessible to educators. So I think part of it is how we train and educate our educators, to be honest. I think that's a really important component of this as they start to think and get into the field. And also our school counselors, right, who are usually on the front line of this, but are often siloed in a counseling office instead of being able to talk more directly with the people who are also interacting with them in English class or an art class or whatever it is. Um, I think we need to think through that system as well. I think so, too. Just having had some experience now with dialectical behavioral therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy, it feels like those are skill sets that we should just all be taught. Right. Like it just it would just help so much in in this context of what you're talking about, where you're on hyperdrive with managing relationships and knowing, you know, kind of how to take care of yourself and how to take care of another person or how to react to another person in those in that paradigm. As a last point, like to, to build on that, Mike, I teach the sociology of mental illness right now. And I teach it every semester. The class is always full because everybody, you know, it's a topic people are really interested in. But one of the interesting conversations we have every semester is someone every semester without fail will raise their hand and go, how come I didn't learn all of this in ninth grade? Totally. Like I, you know, they're like, I would have had such a different experience. I would have understood, like, this should be a required class in middle school or high school where we just talk about, we just put it on the table. This is the impact of labels. This is the stigma associated with these things. How do you know? Like, what is good? What does chronic stress look like? Right. All of these conversations that we're not having until someone is potentially in a crisis situation or has the resources where they can seek out help along the way everybody else is just sort of left floundering unless they end up in a class. And I I think that's just such the wrong way to approach this. I totally agree with you. 
Um, so my selfish question for you as we wind down is, so I have a 12th grader going into college next year who actually is a 10th grader based on our conversation. So how do I, how do I think about that? How, as a parent, what are the things that I should be talking to him about? Is there any sorts of preparations we should be doing in terms of conversations or other support that we should provide to him, you know, as he goes so very far away. I know. Yes. <laughs> it's a huge, huge moment. So my first thing is, and this is the conversation I have with all my college students, the, as best we can, although it's it's such a popular narrative, so don't worry if it's already happened or you've said it, is I think a lot of times we say, oh, it's the best four years of your life. <laughs> and we do a lot of this. Um, and I think that that's very burdensome, actually, for kids because they get to college and they're sort of like, wait, I thought this was going to be a laugh a minute. And, you know, my college students will say, sure, I have great fun times, but I also have some really hard times. Right. And, and, and that it isn't just if the, and then they'll sort of say to me, and if this is the best and I'm like, no, nope, it's not. And you get to pick your best four years, you'll decide (laughs) end of your life. You can pick which four you want to go with. And they're like, oh, okay, thanks. So, so not setting it up that it's going to be this like amazing, perfect experience. I also think one of the things I've learned from working with a lot of people specifically around the Title IX offices and colleges is that the first six weeks on a college campus are really critical for kids' safety, both emotional and physical safety. Most of the things that go wrong on college campuses, not, not you know, across the board, but a lot of the things go wrong in the first six weeks. As you can imagine, right, and so here's the conversations – as you can imagine, because kids are either trying to try out new identities, right? They're like, I'm going to go to college and be, you know, X, right? And then they sort of realize that isn't probably who they were. Or they end up with the situation of trying to fit in, right? Of like, I, you know, I don't feel great about this group, but I'm just going to go along with it. I'm going to go to that party. I'm going to engage in that binge drinking. I'm going to, you know, whatever it is kind of thing. I'm going to, you know, go home with that person because I just want to fit in. And, and I can't tell you how many kids I talk to whether it's my college students currently or kids in high school about digital mistakes they've made, where at the end of the day, that is the, that is the real reason. They will say to me, I knew it was wrong. I felt a pit in my stomach when I did it and I did it anyway to fit in. Right. And so the conversation, again, to your point, because we really have a 10th grader, has to be about, look, this is the difference between fitting in and belonging. And what you're looking for is belonging. Right. And the belonging is I'm just there with my zit cream and my sweatpants on and nobody's judging me. And you don't need that with everyone, but they need to have belonging with a couple people where they can be at that party and go, hey, I, I don't. I don't like what's happening. And the person goes, me too. And they're out of there, right? That's what you need. So so having them be on the search, not for one of the things social media has done to kids is it's skewed the perspective around quantification of friendships. Like I have to have a lot of friends. I have to have a lot of likes. I have to have a lot of followers, right? Bringing it back to you just have to have that one person or a couple people where you really belong. And that's your goal of, of freshman year. The second thing around tech, I would say, is helping them over the summer or, you know, starting in the spring, whatever you can do, is starting to help them think about what actually works for them. So doing a version of what I call with kids a tech assessment, where they think about like, what actually does help me connect with friends? What are the platforms? What are the spaces? What what actually helps me take that break when I just need to laugh? Like, is it the episode of The Office I've watched 87 times already? Like, actually knowing what works is really helpful. And then conversely, where do I find myself down the rabbit hole of I pick my head up and I realize it was three hours? Where do I find myself feeling lonelier or less engaged? Having them develop some or starting to develop some metacognition around what actually works and what doesn't 
is really, really helpful because what we want your kiddo to do is to be in the college dorm and be feeling whatever feeling and go, okay, and I know, A, maybe the answer is I put the phone down and I go do something else. Or maybe the answer is I FaceTime with my buddy from high school because that actually does help me connect, right? Being aware of like what actually works and what doesn't would be so helpful because most of the time kids have no idea and they just pick the thing up hoping for that dopamine hit without actually understanding of our, you know, are they getting something that actually helps versus something that actually makes them feel worse? And in, in 12th grade, they're, they're able to start thinking that way. So helping that, and, and that's not a one and done, like it's not like for all time, that'll be the answer. But, you know, if that, if your kid can go to college with a sense of that, that will go so far. And then that can be your code, right? So, you know, if you get the call of like, I feel really lonely, it's like, what do you do? What works for you? You know, right? Again, putting your kid back in the control seat of like, yeah, I do know what works. I have thought about this. That's really powerful for them. And then on the flip side of things, if I were a parent who had a child who was entering third grade, because it sounds like some of my peers then might have access to all of this. And I'm as a parent probably thinking about, oh gosh, what do I do? What's your advice to them? How do they think about it knowing everything we know at this point? I mean, I would say it's not the cool answer and it's not going to win you a lot of points with your kids, but waiting is never is never a bad idea. I have never talked to an adult who has said to me, I wish I gave my kids social media before. (laughs) I waited too long. I have never heard that. I only usually hear the opposite. The further they can get in that sense of who they are, the better. So whether that for your kid, you know, and and you'll find there'll be a juncture at which it becomes socially really challenging for the kid to not be there. But the longer you can hold out, the better. What I would say, so then what you want to think about is what can you do instead? Are there ways like, you know, third graders can play roadblocks together, you know, and and that's a video game that's great. And they can connect over a headset with their friend and that can be a way they connect. Or could they FaceTime a friend using a family device or a parent device? You know, there's ways you can sort of think about, okay, it's not this, but what could we do? Where could we meet halfway so that you aren't feeling that social isolation of, I actually literally have no idea what's going on in the class but you're not all in on everything. And then I would say to to parents with younger kids or guardians with younger kids is to think about when you do decide to become, you know, let them become more engaged in these spaces, you don't have to go all in on everything right away. I think some people feel like, okay, I gave the phone. So now it's Instagram, Snapchat, and TikTok. You know, it can be one of those things. And even more refined, it can be one of those things with an approved list of 20 people. Right. And that's where they start. And then they gradually add as they build more skills and they have an understanding of like, okay, this is how this works. Right. I think some of the kids that go, they go to like a thousand followers in the first, you know, week that they're on any of these platforms. That's much harder. It's harder to pull back. So the slower you can add in, I think the better as you build trust and and they feel like, okay, I have a sense of what's going on. That usually I I would say is is the best approach. Skill building is a really interesting way to look at it. Well, Jill Walsh, thank you very much. I've learned so much. This this has been an incredible conversation. Thank you very much for spending time with me today talking about this. Of course. And thank you for your great questions. I was like, oh gosh, everything you said. I was like, yes, and five other things. So yeah, it was wonderful. (laughs) I loved it. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Jill Walsh. 
I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.